0: Who cares about Watchmen? Episode 3, she was killed by space junk. This week, we have myself, Neo, an Australian long-time fan of the Watchmen comic and showrunner Damon Lindelof's recent TV work. And we have In Giga, a long-time fan of the author of the comic, Alan Moore, who's never seen Lost but was impressed by Lindelof's latest show, The Leftovers. And we also have another Australian, Tomtit who also is familiar with the comic and Lindelof Slater show. And what better episode for us to end up with, people who've read the comic that is, as this was by far the most hooked into the comic yet, while of course still theoretically trying to operate as a
1: show that works for complete newcomers as well, would you agree? Yeah, certainly this episode was the most um, bound up in not only uh, what happened in the comic, but also trying to clarify what happened between the comic and the present day. And it had the most little um, nuggets of info and treats, I guess, for people who are familiar with the comic and perhaps deeply invested in it.
0: And not only familiar with the comic, but familiar with the show's own kind of extended material, the PDPedia documents HBO put on their website that do some world building. But anyway, to quickly recap the points of the episode before we start doling out the takes, the episode sees FBI agent Laurie Blake sent to Tulsa by Republican senator and presidential hopeful Joe Keane Jr. It's Joe, right. It's definitely Keane. Yeah, it's Joe Keane. Joe Keane Jr. Joe Keane. That's funny. It sounds like Joaquin, almost. So I would just say it sounds like joking, like as
1: in you know, telling a joke.
0: All those connections, Joaquin, joking. it's all there. Joe Keane Jr., sends her to investigate Chief of Police Judd Crawford's hanging. We hear details of the original comic including that Laurie Blake was once a masked vigilante aka superhero herself. Through phone calls she makes to Mars a kind of Letters to Santa Claus-esque lifeline is how I thought of it. Lifeline to Dr. Manhattan, supposedly. Laurie attends Police Chief Judd Crawford's funeral where a 7th cavalry member attempts to kidnap Joe Keane Jr but is foiled by Laurie and Sister Knight's quick thinking. Meanwhile, Jeremy Ines is finally confirmed as Adrian White, aka Ozymandias, and he's experimenting with his identical servants, trying to send them into the great beyond. He tries to hunt down some buffalo for this purpose, but is foiled by the Game Warden, who he excitedly begins a battle of the wills with. And back in Tulsa, Laurie can tell Angela Abar is Sister Knight, and tries to intimidate her, but Sister Knight is not having it, and Angela's car drops from the sky near Laurie, who knows why, to which Laurie laughs. What did we think of this episode then?
2: It was an interesting hybrid of trying to like uh, include fan service to the comic, and also, um, I guess to use Lindelof's word, disrupting it. Like With the way Laurie's status quo is uh, developed, it's almost like, Sorry, I'm going to use a really bad pun here. It's almost like sort of Blue Balls. <laughs> she's not exactly as happy as, like, a fan of the comic would want her to be. Like, she still has quite a lot of hang-ups. So it's sort of, um... As a fan, you're sort of denied, like... You don't get to see, like, the super badass, um... Laurie that maybe you wanted. Like, she's clearly got some issues going on. So there's there's definitely a theme of, like... You know, the old folks trying to recapture their youth, which you also see echoed in what vibes up to. And, um... Yeah, I can't say I enjoyed this quite as much as episode one, honestly, because, like, I think this episode there were a lot of just sort of quotations from the book which I didn't find as interesting as the new mythology. But um, I have a feeling that this this sort of tone is more of a one-off than, like, how the series is going to continue going forward. So um, as a standalone thing, I I really enjoyed it.
0: It was certainly a solo character-focused ep, like Lindelof's done in... Lost and the Leftovers, and which he actually says he got from Watchmen, how the comic did these solo issues during the backstory of certain characters, told all from their points of view. So, yeah, I get the impression this very much isn't the normal mode of operations, but that and that that normal mode of operations is focusing more on Sister Knight and other characters' perspectives. So, a one-off, yeah, I would agree with. But what did you think of this one-off gig?
1: Um, Probably of the three episodes so far, this might be the one I sort of, like uh kind of loved the least but not in the sense that i didn't like love it or didn't enjoy it but just um I liked here, I find the new stuff and all the political themes being introduced by the new stuff, the stuff like the Tulsa massacre and racial tensions and all that, I find that super exciting. So, an episode that's more or less sort of um, recapping and sort of uh, providing fan service and fan disservice to, as relating to stuff that I already know, you know, is maybe not quite as, you know, fascinating. And also, on uh, both structural and directorial level, it felt a bit more like a normal television show. Than the previous two episodes did, both in terms of how it was shot and how it was structured. It had a bit less of a sense of sort of uh, that nervous energy to it, where it could go in any direction. It was a, bit played out a bit more like normally like it was more of a procedural thing so you know laurie gets her mission you know she appears and it's also overlaid with her you know framing device of her telling this you know story which um although i did i would say that um the ending with the car dropping out of the sky that's the watchman that i like so i'm pleased to see it going back in that sort of a mad direction seeing the main plot come back in
0: yeah so this was the first episode not directed by uh, what's her name? She directed the first two episodes. Nicole
1: Castle. Nicole Castle, yeah, who's
0: done The Leftovers yeah, and some others. two out stuff.
2: of the three Matt episodes from Leftovers.
0: Oh, wow. Well, she's deserving a very high praise then because those are excellently directed. But so, she's not directing, but of course, when you direct a pilot for TV, generally you set out the visual style that all future directors will use and adhere to. That's why pilot directors get some of the back end of TV shows and stuff like that. It's why you'll often see famous directors do the pilots of certain shows like Martin Scorsese, Who's the love of the internet right now directed the boardwalk empire pilot and that kind of thing but so nicole castle uh i think a lot of her touches although she didn't direct this third episode were in this episode and things were like a lot of using imagery from the comic or this kind of an animal imagery like uh we got those shots that kind of framed laurie like an owl or framed her through the owl glasses and that kind of thing and we also kept getting split diopter shots, uh, which surprised me. I thought that was just like her touch, but this director kept that up. There was one where Laurie's pouring like a glass of water or something while Joaquin Jr. is in the shot as well. And um, what a split diopter is, it's like an attachment for a camera lens that lets you have two things in focus at the same time. Uh, do you know the shot I'm talking about? Maybe you didn't notice, but I was interested that they kept doing uh,
2: that. Yeah, I noticed... I noticed the tap shot, definitely, but I didn't notice any others. Yeah.
0: So, I think it was interesting the way they're keeping up with that vision of the show, but certainly, um, even Nicole Castle's episodes feel less kind of, uh, what's the word? Not meme-tacular, but they don't feel as ostentatious as a lot of other shows that really push the visuals as like an arresting, uh, attention-grabbing thing. Uh, which isn't a bad thing. It certainly differentiates it from the comic, which I think, well, I guess, the comic with the nine-panel grid, it isn't, it isn't calling attention to itself like flashily, necessarily. But do you know, do you know where I'm going? With this, the show isn't flashy uh, visually, even though it's got a lot going on under the hood visually. I would say.
1: I'd say the comic The comic is extremely striking, isn't it? You know, its use of colour and its use of layout. I think I, I'd say the comic does call attention to its visuals a lot in some ways. It, it's not flashy per se, but it is, it's very focused and it's very intricate.
2: I think there's something kind of un-flashy about having like one single device that you stick to and develop throughout an entire book, rather than yeah. like in certain books you'd have pages yeah. where it's like, oh, the panels are a fucking, uh, I don't know, spider web or something, you know. And yeah, Nicole Castle kind of captures the equivalent of that. I
0: agree. Ole, uh, you were saying the words fan disservice were used, and Tom Tip was kind of talking about how this mightn't be like the follow-up for Laurie we were hoping for. But, uh, speaking as a huge Laurie fan, I always thought she was, more than any of the other principal characters in the comic. she feels more real maybe she has more human reactions and she's got like even Dan who's kind of the everyman he's still like a rich guy beating up poor people dressed in an owl suit like obviously Laurie wore a costume as well but reluctantly and there were kind of parental reasons why she was doing it and everything she always felt a lot more normal than the other characters to me and there's criticism that she isn't characterized as much as are some of the men crime busters in that and that's um, true I suppose and so I was very excited f- For this, to her to get her own show, you know, her whole own episode, a whole showcase for her. And I thought her development was uh, really cool. I I, I really liked it. I liked her being this, you know, super cool, jaded FBI agent. And she had an appropriate level of, like, tragedy and cynicism since. So, it didn't feel like wish fulfillment. But I thought it was a really um, honorable kind of iteration of the character, if you know what I'm saying. Like, it felt true to her and it felt developing her without or reducing while still strengthening her, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I thought... Um, I, I like how they kind of honoured that whole well basically at the end of the comic, like pretty much the last time she appears in the comic, she, there's this suggestion that she's gonna, she's gonna get a gun, she's gonna put on the le- leather mask or whatever, and she's gonna become like an iteration of her father, basically, like almost like the equivalent of the comedian, but you know, female and if we've been reading the stuff on the, the website, we'll have noticed that she actually took up the, the alter ego of the comedian, at one point which is amusing, and um, what we've got now isn't quite to that, but it's sort of um, maybe that filtered through a more uh, professional kind of business-like mode so she's still she's still quite brutal she shoots that guy that the shadow in the back like unrepentantly at the start no hesitation and obviously you know, she uh, shoots the hell out of that suicide bomber in uh, at the funeral in this episode and she's um and she's got this very, she's, she's very, there's this very, har- there's this harshness to her. She doesn't mind if people are getting, you know, their civil rights are violated or whatever. But um, they, they make her very human as well. They really, and one thing that actually surprised me a little bit, in how sweet it was and how kind of poignant it was was that she keeps an owl to remind her of dan and she wants to free him from prison that was oh that was so sad and so sweet like i was actually i was, I was a bit shocked that they did that it's inter- so so if we if we
0: look at a life story so she was raised by her mum and her um well her dad who uh, they broke up eventually and it wasn't her biological father and her mum was a superhero called silk specter who raised her with the expectation that she'd become, you know, a superhero herself, and she was still expected to. She was never that much into it. She dated, like, God for a good amount of time. Doctor Manhattan. Uh, eventually, <coughs> that that didn't work out. In the original comic, Doctor Manhattan absconded, and she got with Dan, Night Owl the second. So they were both second generation <coughs> superheroes. And Dan, how would we describe Dan? Dan is a He's like a Batman archetype in that he's rich and he's kind of obsessive and nerdy and, uh, you know, he has really high-tech stuff. But Dan's a real soft guy, isn't he? I'd say he's kind of the, um, hmm.
1: He's the nice guy of Watchmen, isn't he? Like physically soft?
0: Uh, (laughs) Ah, physically, yeah. Well, he's doughy, yeah. Uh, He's the nice guy and we use that term, you know, with all the connotations. And she gets with Dan instead of you know Godly naked blue Dr. Manhattan for a number of reasons. And I always like that the comic doesn't like, like I think this story could have been told in a way that very, very oh look at the emasculating the woman's you know so oh this, this is the nice guy and this is the um, this is the Chad and this is the you know the virgin. And I like that the comic I think frames it very sympathetically like her choosing Dan, because, oh, Dan's nice and he's not so, you know, much to deal with and all that. Like, I feel like under some writers that would have felt... Uh, Cynical? Yeah. But I, I, I always felt, um, for all the less attention Laurie got, I felt a kind of feminine perspective even with how the comic framed that because it never felt like Dan's neuroses and Dan's feeling too emasculated by that to me. It felt like what Laurie was doing made sense and was... I felt an actual, I don't know if love's the right word, but emotionally it all felt true to me and it didn't feel cynical to me. It felt real and uh, nuanced in that real way that real relationships and, you know, changing relationships is, but it, 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 it all felt good to me. And so, I liked that, you know, in the intervening years, her and Dan, as some of the episode back matter says, they, you know, they were still superheroes for a while. Eventually, they got caught. Laurie somehow finagled that into being employed by the FBI who caught them but Dan is imprisoned for you know being a superhero is illegal so he's still in prison Laurie keeps an owl in a cage which is symbolic of that and Joe Keene Jr gets her to go investigate the Tulsa stuff which she doesn't really want to do by hinting that you know if he's elected and this stuff would help with him getting elected that he might do something about getting Dan out of jail I all this feels like a believable follow-up to the comic to me. Like, it's not a happy ending, Dan being in prison. And so, we've, we now understand why the police have the owl ships and the goggles and that. It's because the FBI caught Dan, presumably seized his stuff, reverse-engineered it. So, it's a sad follow-up, but Laurie's evolution is interesting. And I like that we don't know if her and Dan are still, you know, necessarily think of themselves as together or anything. But there's still obviously a great deal of care or affection there.
1: I will say it's quite savvy of them to kind of use use Dan almost as a way to get any fans of the comic immediately rooting for Laurie to win, even though, you know, that means rooting for a Republican president, which is maybe uh, <laughs> not the best thing. And also, I mean, Joe Keane is probably the bad guy, and this is probably all part of his scheme. But nonetheless, like, I, I really, I, I don't, I, I doubt we will see Dan get freed in the show, but I really want it to happen. I want her to win.
0: Oh, yeah. Save Dan. I mean- Linda Love's made comments, um, I think this was well in the past if I remember correctly, like it wasn't this year or anything, but about how the tricky thing in adapting Watchmen or doing whatever he calls it, a sequel to Watchmen is that, you know, there was that film in 2009 by Zack Snyder and the film's casting is... Some of it's fantastic and some of it is truly dreadful to me, but the casting of Dan is very widely praised. Patrick Wilson, most people seem to think that that was very much off the page and very accurate. And Lindelof kind of grappled with the issue was, you know, if I want to use some of these characters, I can cast people that aren't, you know, the film actors because I don't want people to confuse this with the film or think it's a sequel to the film. This is just a sequel to the comic, but that means intentionally casting someone who I might think isn't, as fitting for this character. And it seems the way he got around that was just excluding those sort of characters. Like, Rorschach's dead, so it doesn't matter how well cast he was. But Dan, you know, (laughs) the way to get around not using Patrick Wilson, which would be a headache and confusing, is to simply leave Dan out of the narrative. And then that creates a kind of interesting space to do these kind of story developments with. And there's no worry about recasting Silk Spectre, because did anyone enjoy that performance in the film? That was...
2: She's like a character from a Tommy Wiseau movie in the Zack Snyder one. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, that I'm bad? Like,
1: Jesus Christ. It's truly true. Dr- yeah, it's
2: yeah. very bad.
1: So, well, since on the, to- on, the to- on the topic of Laurie, should we talk about that whole um, story she was telling, the sort of n- narration of the past and the, the three <sighs> heroes and stuff and the brick yes. joke and all that stuff? Because I know Neo didn't like those scenes at all, did you? <laughs>
0: No, it's. I mean, I get the parable, and yeah, I get how they fitted it into Watchmen. Like, I can see the the Doctor Manhattan one was a real stretch. I gotta say, the third man in that parable doesn't map onto Doctor Manhattan at all. But the first two did work. Like, that was pretty clever. um, Managing them into that. So I, you know, it's a very writerly thing. I can see everyone in a writer's room thinking this is clever, but it just it was just exposition for the comic. It was the same reason I disliked the Jeremy Irons segment in episode two. I feel like this is just. Explaining stuff from the comic and I don't think what it said is that enlightening to Laurie's character that it bore telling in the show anyway as the show, you know, in a self-contained thing, even if you haven't read the comic. I didn't feel like what she was saying was that revelatory. It's like, oh, I've known a lot of superheroes who um were all messed up or too soft or too evil in their own ways but, you know, you don't think about the fourth one the woman and I also, I threw up the brick I'm gonna kill God, like it's all... It felt a little too much tell, not enough show for me. But then the episode was showing her fine. Like, I I didn't feel like we needed these and I just felt that they were kind of unwieldy and a lot of words that we didn't need. But what did you two think of them?
2: Um, I really didn't buy that, like, we're supposed to believe that Laurie has studied Rorschach's journal to the extent that she can actually, like, quote (laughs) from a part of it. Yeah. I feel like Laurie just wouldn't care. Like, she wouldn't give that the time of day. Um... Because her character in the book is very like Rorschach's, just a nut. Like, I don't really want to look yeah, well, at him. He's,
0: he's, a, he's a real dick to her because you know she's taking his man. She's taking Dan. Who, you know, some believe Rorschach had a crush on. So he certainly resents Laurie a shitload in the comic. Like, he's really quite mean to her. Uh, yeah, so definitely. Her- So, her knowing Rorschach's, she quotes Rorschach's journal with the Roland snare drum stuff. That's a reference to um, a famous Rorschach. Well, I guess it's famous in-universe and famous out-of-universe, the Roland snare drum Pagliacci uh, joke he makes and the ending of that. So yeah, that feels very much like the writers wrote this, not that Laurie felt this. It kind of to, breaks.
1: To, to cope with this slightly, slight, um, just slight defence is that um, she is an FBI agent at this point and Rorschach Journal has become this huge you know, document inspiring all these terrorists and stuff. I think it's it's plausible that in the intervening 30 years she might have read at least you know some of it. At least she have a cursory familiarity with some of its more iconic passages. I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility.
0: On that note of the journal, we had the man behind much of the... Behind the scenes material, documents, in-universe documents, we got on HBO's website called PDpedia. We had the man himself, Dale Petey, in this episode and that was so cool because uh, this is totally a show creation, this character, but we were already familiar with this character reading those documents for episode one and episode two, so I was really stoked to see him on screen. That was a really cool uh, revelation to me and uh, he was an interesting character. I liked how... He kind of um, stood his own against Laurie when she was trying to dress him down as a fanboy or whatever. And I thought it was interesting both Petey and Sister Knight kind of stand down Laurie when she was trying to be this real tough nut, you know, and I think it kind of shows that Laurie's putting on a show, I think, to a great degree. And I mean, you put on a show enough and what's the effective difference between you actually being that thing and just pretending to be that thing? But I thought it was interesting when certain people stand up to her, she she does kind of shrug and go, well, okay, you know, I'm not pushing this further,
1: you've got me. PT wasn't what I expected at all. Actually, reading the stuff on the website and reading him sort of verging over this and that and how oh this TV show is really bad and stuff like I thought he'd be some random like hermit of like some middle-aged man like scrolling away on a computer somewhere like some tortured archivist or something. But then to see him on screen, he's just like this little like this little twink. I was I was <laughs> I was quite surprised. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's a funny character. It's nice to finally uh, meet him. I thought his um. The, the 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 nuances of his relationship with uh, Laurie is quite interesting because they do this whole thing about you know I'm not just a fanboy I have a PhD in history and then at the end he, he you know he's we see him in bed with her wearing that little mask wearing that the historical mask he off the earlier. Minor and um, Uh, people who read the comic will remember that um, Laurie's mother would kind of sort of um, give fan service of her own to her fans in certain ways and it seems like not only has Laurie uh, become her father but she's also kind of become her mother a bit as well like she even keeps that old poster of her like erotically posing with Dr. Manhattan in her little uh, suitcase so yeah Yeah, it's all very interesting and it's, it's nice how It's sort of a, as a follow-up on the comic, it's kind of twisted, but it's twisted in a good way.
0: And don't forget that, you know, Dan in the comic, Laurie's lover Dan, is impotent without his costume initially, which is all plays in the... The comic is very... it really thinks that the motivation to dress up as a superhero or to play around as a superhero was very sexually... Based, it says.
1: It offers that as a possibility, like one of multiple reasons why someone might do it.
0: And yeah, Dan can't get erect unless he's in the superhero outfit at first, so at least at first, I presume that they got over that at some point, I certainly hope they did. But so for Dale Petey to be wearing the mask I thought was interesting. I don't think he was impotent without it or anything, God know, but interesting for Laurie to sleep with someone doing that again.
1: Are we going to talk about the space junk? Yeah, that was...
0: I... The the magazine inside the briefcase, I was like you were saying, Gig, it's very much you become your parents kind of thing. Because remember, she abhorred how her mother kept the old magazines and porno things of herself back in the day. She really disliked how her mum did that. She told her off. But there she is keeping, you know, a raunchy thing of herself in her youth, you know, with strapping Dr. Manhattan there. Interesting, that
2: kind of theme of becoming our parents.
0: And also, there was the huge blue dildo, yeah the cock, yeah. yeah.
2: The space junk, that was, I think that was actually my favourite part of the whole Doctor Manhattan um, like, pining arc that we see in this episode, because like, on a very meta sort of level, in this show you have um, the old characters from the book being represented through uh, totems, like the 7th Cavalry wears Rorschach's masks, that's an obvious one, and um, Vite is sort of represented by the squids, and you have the owl for Dan, and the iconic symbol of Dr. Manhattan, like, they would have you believe it's the hydrogen thing on his head, but it's not, it's, it's the dick, you know, yeah. so it's perfectly consistent with like the way all the other characters have been represented and um, I don't know, there's something kind of poignant about it and like slightly upsetting, <laughs> just, I don't know, very interesting.
1: Lindelof did a little bit of an interview about um, the getting the dick into the show, and it, it was it sort of it wasn't his idea. It came from his sort of uh, his, some of his female co-writers as well, and the, the female co-writer writer of this episode, Lila Biok or however you pronounce it, and um, and uh, also she she she, um, she 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 told the designers that it should be it should look like a Jeff Koontz statue, <laughs> and he basically does these sort of like these very shiny kind of metallic balloon animal like things. I love how abstract the design of the dildo was. Like, it's just so it's so bizarre and wrong to look at. Like it doesn't it doesn't look like a like a real dick in any way. It's just so it's so it really is totemic, like you said. To it. It's just got this bizarre energy to it.
0: It certainly puts an expectation on the actor who will presumably play Doctor Manhattan later in the series. And I can only think of one man for the job uh, after this episode.
2: How is he going to get through this? Just <laughs> in the room. I Guess do. I do. D-
0: I do. Honestly, wonder. Justin Thru was the lead of the Leftovers, and his um, uh what's what's a nice way
1: to put it? His his package, his endowment. his yeah, his good. Um, his his, his, goods. Endow-
0: his, his endowment suite. was. Yeah, his presidential suite. <laughs> his international it was, assassin. <laughs> it was a big meme of the show within the show and with the fans because it was just it was very prominent in certain scenes and it's. Its uh, dimensions were obvious, and they impressed people.
2: I do really enjoy just like the tension of whether we'll actually see him or not. I think it's like a good hook for the show.
0: I think it's 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 not it's not Watchmen without Doctor Manhattan. I, I I do think he'll come into it, but not towards the very end. I'm sure. But it's interesting what characters they do use. Silk Spectre always could have used more story and more development, so it makes sense to use her. Ozymandias, I think, is just so much a character that you wonder, what is this guy like in a few decades? What does he think after what he did, which was effectively, you know, a bomb part of New York, kill three million people to try and unite the world into world peace, which basically worked. And the world still doesn't seem that great afterwards, like he's gotten rid of the problem of nuclear Armageddon and whatnot. But look at, you know, race relations and all these other things. It doesn't fix the world just to remove
1: you know, this big existential threat. Well, speaking of Adrian, um, we we learn a lot about his predicament in this episode, don't we? We have some uh, sort of interesting new clues and we see him seemingly trying to make some sort of suit, space suit for uh, Mr. Phillips, who he sends out into the great beyond, wherever that is, only for him to come back as an icicle. And then he tries to, you know, um, get some sort of materials from the uh, local uh, fauna only to be basically shot at by this person called the Game Warden. And it seems like in their correspondence, it becomes clear that Adrian has agreed on the terms of his captivity somehow with this game warden. And it's not clear to me, like, why would he do that? And, like, sort of, why is he here? Why is he agreed to this? And it's all, it's very, um, it's very puzzling, but it does lead to that very fun scene of him sort of dictating his response and dressing up in his old <laughs> costume. And, you know, that image of him, sort of a bit like sort of Mermaid Man in SpongeBob, kind of with the mask <laughs> on, and sort of as this this old man trying to relive the glory days. It's very much, um, it's quite tiny because we seem to be living in this era where kind of has-beens in Hollywood basically come back and do new movies playing their old characters and stuff. We're just in such of this kind of reliving the glory days kind of era right now.
0: Yeah, it's true, all of it, what you just said. And I think we we, we, we can laugh at the scene of him dressing up in the costume, but I felt so... Watching this, part of me was like laughing at him, thinking he looks so ridiculous, this is so silly what he's doing. But part of me felt probably like awed. Like, this is Ozymandias putting on the Ozymandias suit. I was impressed. And it's Jeremy Irons, you know. I think it was a real interesting combination of emotions. And I think the music was really playing into it in this scene. And like, it's the whole concept of superheroes as conceived in Watchmen. Like, there's there's certainly a compulsion and a pull to these characters and, you know, what they're doing. But at the same time, you're going, this is fucking ridiculous. This is so stupid. But these both exist at the same time. And I, I know I abhorred Last episodes, Jeremy Irons segments, but I was right back to loving it with this one. I loved the um, Lindelof described these segments as like a release valve, like a comedy, a comedy kind of section in the episodes because all the Tulsa stuff is so heavy and draining. That Jeremy Irons chewing this scenery and having these bizarre Looney Tunes esque adventures is just such a great kind of tonal mix up, but. I know I was overthinking it in the first two podcasts because I was thinking, oh, maybe he's not Ozzy Mandius. And then Lindelof says he only hid his identity as Ozzy Mandius, Jeremy Irons, because if that was confirmed off the bat, everyone would go, oh, it's a sequel to Watchmen, and Ozzy's back. It's about Ozzy, and he didn't want that. I don't know how effective obscuring it was. Like it's a bit puzzle boxy, which um, feels a little dated to be that puzzle boxy now. But, I mean, it is a sequel to Watchmen, this is my thing. I get why he says it's a remix, it's a new story, but the word sequel, you know, it is a story set after the initial story. It's got all its own themes and it's doing all its own stuff, but I feel like I would just give in and call it a sequel because it is a sequel.
2: I think he's probably like, to some extent, uh, ashamed that he is making a sequel and that's why he's sort of reluctant to use that word.
0: Yeah. I guess also they they like this is intended. You don't need to read the comic to watch this, and certainly we're getting enough exposition about the comic that I think it's presumably possible. We'll hear when Dilbs next on, but it's possible to follow the show without reading the comic. It's HBO wouldn't make a big expensive show just for people who've read this comic, even if it's like the most famous comic there is, whatever. I-
1: I think they've pretty much achieved what they wanted to do with um, in terms of um in terms of having it be something that stands on its own. Like there's a fundamental difference between what they're doing and if they'd gone, this is Watchman 2, watch the show to find out what happened to all your favourite characters. Yeah. And uh, to that end, I think being a bit coy about Jeremy Irons' character and you know his identity, I think it I think it has basically served its purpose because even though everyone in the know figured, you know, this guy is probably Ozymandias, like very few people wanted to like go outright and say, okay, this is confirmed, we know this for a fact, this is true, it's the story of Ozymandias, because, you know, because it isn't, you know, so, and I think, Mm. so it's... Having said that, it was a bit annoying in this episode having them basically, like, announce it in this episode. I am Adrian Veidt! And just saying this to the to camera really definitively, just in, case you did, just in case you didn't work it out, that oh, this is who I am, by the way, I'm Adrian Veidt. It was a bit of about expositional stuff, but yeah, I didn't mind that much.
0: I gotta admit, I really liked that, actually. <laughs> it felt just like such a self-aware announcement and kind of direct direction setting for the show. Um, I found it very satisfying, actually, the cheesy yeah. declaration that I'm Adrian Veidt.
2: Cool like, it's not as if everything else Ions has been doing has been subtle and restrained up to this point, you know? It (laughs) fits quite perfectly.
0: What I think, to this kind of effect we're talking about, about how it's its own thing, you know, it's set after the comic, and yes, it's a sequel, but it's its own, you know, story. I think what was interesting to me is this episode felt like a premiere to me in a lot of ways. Like, if, if this was Laurie Blake's perspective the show was told from, this would make a perfectly, you know, good premiere. She enters this strange city well, you know, the cops are weird and there's a weird conflict going on and she's investigating it and this woman seems very strong and she's going to have a battle of the wills with her. It works as an entry point, but what's interesting is we didn't start with a character from the comic's perspective. We didn't start with a third episode. We started in 1921. We started with Tulsa and then our main characters are all from Tulsa. They're mostly original characters to the show, not from the comic. And so I think having like this second premiere really worked to, to kind of uh, frame the show's intent which is we're evolving the themes and some of the characters from the comic in interesting ways but we're very much doing it in a new story which starts in a new place with new
1: characters but that folds into the existing story it's basically it's basically the same trick you did in season two of leftovers isn't it like we start out with the new family and then in the next episode we get the original family kind of coming back in we see it from their perspective
0: and it was super effective in that show so you know why not do it to Watchmen? men I, I think that's working really well
1: I think um,
2: the different directorial style, or slightly different—not like completely different—but gig picked up on it, and so did I. I think it sort of um, suits Laurie's like different perspective as a character as well. So yeah. I think she has her own like sort of sardonic, wry way of viewing the world, and like you have these kind of slick transitions between scenes and stuff, which I think reflect that. And just like Laurie's perspective coming into Tulsa, I think it makes the whole status quo in that town seem a lot more like silly. I'm thinking mainly of the scene where she walks up to Pirate Jenny and Red Scare and, like, they introduce themselves. And it's just... It's not badass at all. And, like, I think my favourite Jean Smart moment in the episode was when uh, Jenny and Scare, they introduce themselves and she's just like, wow, cool. Yes. <laughs> it was, like pitch
1: perfect see that, that that whole thing I loved how um, Laurie just kind of mocks not just those two but also Looking Glass as well like she's so derisive of the whole little LARP kind of roleplay thing that they've got going on I love when she she, you know, she casually doxes Sister Knight in front of Looking Glass and then she just gives him this really innocent little look while he stares at her with you know utterly baleful eyes I thought it was also it's, it's so entertaining like because we've had two episodes treating all of this very seriously and being all this kind of slick stylish world where anything can happen and it's all really crazy and match cuts all over the place and and then laurie just kind of she strolls in and she's like you know this this is silly you know <laughs> you've got people wearing your like, dog masks and shit it's just it's absurd yeah.
0: it's you really you wonder how the Minutemen thought of the crime busters you wonder how the 1930s 1940s superheroes thought of the 1980s crew in the comic it's, we're really getting this generational thing not just with the parents theme like with laurie but with the superheroes well the masked vigilants or the masked cops who can tell the difference as um as Laurie questions. It, it's it, you can see what, where the cynicism comes from. But it's interesting how the Minutemen didn't act like this. Like Captain Metropolis, who was kind of the leader of the Minutemen, he tried to make the Crime Busters in the first place. He's the one who set up the meeting, um, and that really didn't work out. And you know, Night Owl the first was stoked for another guy to come in and want to use his name. It's funny how it's this third generation of superheroes. Well, I guess who's around? Dan's in prison. Ozymandias seems to be in some kind of prison himself, and Laurie's just, you know, utterly cynical about it all.
1: Yeah, certainly. Like, in, in Laurie's case, you know, she's she seems to have you know sworn her life to like being against this whole thing. She's gone completely in the opposite direction. So you know, the, the whatever this new generation of sort of superhero cops has a quite you know fearful adversary in her. I, I
0: just, um, coming back to that Jeremy Irons thing, um, just how I called it a prison, I'm I'm not trying to do two convoluted theories now because Lord knows that didn't end up working for his identity, but I'm pretty sure what's happening is he's in some kind of biome or something on Mars, which just explains the strange landscape and the kind of stuff a bit and that he's sending his servants into space or something because he's yeah. trying to see how he can escape it. Possibly, if if that phone line to Dr. Manhattan on Mars is true, I wonder if he's not trying to do something with that. Maybe send a message to Earth or get a message from Earth or do something with that, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think it's ironclad that Vite is in space and in some sort of, like, dome. Because, like, um, he attaches a rope to Mr. Phillips, which implies that, say, if Mr. Phillips went outside the, the the dome or wherever he is into space, you know, if, like, it could be a thing like, give me a yank on the rope if you're still alive. Or, you know, Vite can yank him back in, or whatever is going on there. But, yeah, I definitely think he's in space. And there's got to be this link to this whole operation that the, the true corporation have got going on Mars. Like, that's all going to come to light somehow. I feel like the most... The
0: only... Early... Issue I have with linkage with the comic is that it's so out of character for Dr. Manhattan to still be on Mars. And from the way they talked about it in this episode, it sounds like he's been on Mars since 1986, you know, like he's been on Mars the whole time. When the ending of the comic is so clearly him moving past our solar system to go somewhere else and create new life, new humanity, presumably somewhere else. But I mean, they explained Hood of Justice kind of maybe liking the Nazis. So I have total faith that they've read the comic a million times. They know exactly how to stay true to the comic. I'm sure something's coming there, but it feels so weird for Manhattan to be on Mars. And I assume he's really on Mars because the castle was the same as Veidt's castle. Otherwise, I presume like he's just being CGI'd in as this Santa Claus on Mars for people to have faith to write to. I, I, I would have assumed he wasn't even there, if not for that castle.
1: I think they might be able to more or less hand wave it, like, okay, well, you know, he left Earth, he left humanity, and he said he was going to go create new life. Well, you know, he he could just, he could just, he could do that on another planet, he doesn't have to go to another galaxy, maybe they could hand wave it like that. Like, that might be a bit disappointing, because it's maybe more powerful if he truly does just go nowhere where anyone could ever reach him. But, you know, we'll see, we'll see.
0: If you've read before Watchmen or Doomsday Clock, you know exactly where he goes, and it certainly is not in our solar (laughs) system.
1: Uh, you know, it's kind of, it might be a relief that Mirrors isn't here to tell us all about Doomsday Clock this yeah. week, because I don't think I can hack it, yeah. And I was re-
0: It was real false advertising for Before Watchmen to have a scene of Doctor Manhattan after Watchmen, i got to say.
1: I mean, a lot of Before Watchmen is during Watchmen, isn't it, from what you've said? I, w-
0: I would say, you know, over a third.
2: I'm loving every laugh at anyone who thinks for even a second that this show will tie into Doomsday Clock at <laughs> any point do you remember what everyone, a ridiculous notion
0: before the show premiered everyone's saying these two characters from Doomsday Clock Mime and Marionette I think they're called I do DB remember the show, because on the publicly editable website IMDB someone who could be anyone because it's a publicly editable website put their names you know on the cast list saying oh these two actors are playing them I think it might have been the two actors that are playing Vite Servants <laughs> I I will never understand why people take the IMDb stuff seriously. It's like, you can change it. You can go add stuff to it. You can go change it. It's publicly silly. It's, this isn't like HBO's website listing the cast. This is a public, editable
1: website. Never trust cast announcements. It's like, it's like leaving a certain Twitter user about Doctor Who rumours. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, also on Wikipedia, just briefly, they um, said Robert Redford is totally going to be in the show, you guys. yeah, He's coming out of retirement to play like a... Um, horribly misguided (laughs) version of himself (laughs) as president of the United States, that's totally happening.
0: The reason Lindelof didn't even ask him is because he was terrified if Redford caught word of what they were doing in the show, that he'd be like, I'm not comfortable with you using my likeness or using this. And then Lindelof would be, how can I be true to the comic? Because the comic ends with Robert Redford, you know, running for president as like a joke against Ronald Reagan, which the movie bizarrely changes to Ronald Reagan. Like, you've ruined the joke there, guys. It's not a reference if you just say the guy's name. The joke was, his name starts with two R's and it's like an actor. Anyway...
2: Circling back to the whole Vite scenario, what do you guys make of the cakes? Because my first thought was time loop, but then I checked on the Cursed website and some people seem to think that <laughs> it could actually signify that each scene takes place one year after the last.
1: I'm not sure how a time loop would lead to the number of candles going up, but wouldn't that just mean it'd be one candle like, each time? Like, what, I, did? I didn't, I didn't notice went. that. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. No wait, the, the 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 number of candles on the cake has been going up by one each episode. So this week it was three. Last week it was two. So uh, that's kind of why people are thinking maybe a year is passing, or at least it's another anniversary each time we see the cake. It's not clear how how long like these anniversaries actually are. Maybe it's something to do with how long a year is on different planets or something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, like six hundred eighty-seven yeah. days on Mars. Ooh, okay. So would that mean that it's more than a year between each episode, or what? I, I don't know. I don't know how long a day is. <laughs> who, who
0: knows what timescale is being used here? I mean, if, it might not even be like the real sun entering the biome. Because who knows how artificial it is?
1: I think the real the real mystery with vite Scenes is you know this this game warden. Like who who are they? Like, ah, such a weird. Like, could it be? Are they another artificial humanoid like the the servants seem to be? Certainly, they do say in the end of the letter, "Your humble servant. So maybe something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I'm very excited for what's going I truly am really excited for how the next confrontation with the Game Warden's going to go.
2: I feel like um, Irons' accent only gets hammier each episode. Mm. I and I just it. love that he absolutely does talk like a Republic serial villain
0: in this. Yeah. The, the topic of Veidt's accent, because it was scripted as American, um, but Irons is doing something a little more... Uh, yeah, uh, how would you describe his accent?
2: Um, performative. Yeah, I guess
0: I th- I like for all characters. Ozzy I totally buy. Is you know he's extremely performative. He's extremely considers the personas he's putting on, and you know his his parents are from Germany. Like he really strikes me as one of those like Christian Bale esque guys that you know might not have a home accent that much. Like they really rotate through. So I, the, the Hammy accent and the actual like regionalness of the accent um, doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. I think it's fascinating.
2: Yeah, and I buy that like in the 80s, Vite would have done probably just a normal American accent that like would just sound like a regular person talking. But now he's been alone for so long, he's like high off the smell of his own farts. He's doing like a Burt Lancaster parody type accent. It yeah. makes sense to me.
1: One extra detail about Vite and stuff. I noticed um, he has his pale horse. The game warden rides a black horse. I'm just wondering, is could there be some di- dichotomy or duality here? Is that symbolic of something? Okay, fine. You know, <laughs> we'll file that away. Be like that. You know, I don't care. Well, the horses
2: are like the horses of the apocalypse, right? And pale yeah. horse is
0: yeah. one yeah. of them. That's, I don't remember almost, which. Yeah. Uh, speaking of horses... Um, gig, do you want to talk about the first of the three soundtracks that's been released uh, on on LP? Oh, um. Yeah,
1: yeah, on vinyl. Yeah, um, basically, so the first soundtrack album's out, and basically, there are photos of it. And basically, it's packaged like a Sons of Pale Horse album. Now, in the comic, you could see posters for Pale Horse, the original Pale Horse, playing gigs in uh, New York. And um in this we have basically some in the liner notes we have a little write-up about what happened with Sons of Pale Horse and this album they've made called The Book of Rorschach. And this is um, it's very meta because basically this thing, this album about themed after Rorschach, is treated as having inspired a load of people to be, you know, into Rorschach and stuff. And the creators of the album lament that people have misinterpreted their message and they've identified with Rorschach <laughs> when they didn't mean for that to happen. And it's all, it all, it's all it's a bit winking. It's a bit knowing, it's a bit uh, meta in that sense, because it's like, oh well, it's a metaphor for more writing Rorschach in the book, and then people like identifying seriously with Rorschach and, and liking him the most and treating him as like respectable and stuff, even though you know, or even though you know Moore is notorious for being very averse to people who you treat Rorschach as a role model. So yeah, and um, I and I I that theme of kind of self-referentiality, I've noticed that a lot in some of the um the website back matter stuff as yeah. well. They, they, certainly the, the writing that is not directly part of the show tends to be very occupied with um this meta commentary and kind of commenting on the idea of uh, TV shows that kind of document stuff the idea of remixing stuff or redoing stuff or uh, the idea of it's just yeah it's all um it's very <laughs> it's very writerly and it's it's very winking at people who kind of know what's going on here um speaking of which actually speaking of a uh, back matter there is something quite interesting uh, this week on the website which is um not quite related to the main plot this week but there's a letter to who i believe is um Crawford's granddad from a very interesting figure, um, Senator Joe Keane Senior, which discusses that painting, which um, last episode, episode two was titled after, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, and it it explains why the title is um, changed from the original painting, which is interesting, but also it very clearly flags up that it was passed over as this sort of um, clansman rite of passage, like it's it's a totem of kind of a certain responsibility within the clan, and the letter is even signed um, AKIA, which I found out is an acronym for um, A Clansman I Am, and I assume it's pronounced Akia. and what struck me was that we finally know what John Pertwee was screaming in all of those action scenes he had, you know, so he went um, <laughs> Akiya! <laughs> Some disturbing implications there, he's um, even more cancelled than in that uh, corporate commercial video that recently <laughs> leaked with John Pertwee in it, but that's enough Doctor Who shit from me for today
2: Speaking of Doctor Who shit Go on um, I was just going to point out that we had a blue signbox, that's all yeah yeah yeah. but um oh we also have nine inch nails reprising their role from twin peaks that's the nine inch nails yes
1: yes yes they mentioned that that's brilliant
2: yeah and which is interesting because um there's a joke in this episode about um definite articles and how he's like oh you caught the revenger and she's like no it's just revenger
1: (laughs) yeah the Watchmen. (laughs) yeah i like that Okay. Well, I was just going to bring up um, Angela and Laurie's confrontation at the end, and the way in which, like, the only thing Angela basically says in response to Laurie's whole spiel, it, well, she just she just makes that little noise, like. Ooh. And then she like pours the the coffee away. It was it's such a weirdly kind of uh, it's such an anti climax in the scene, and it's it's quite like we're not used to seeing Angela be that funny actually. So it's an interesting other side of her. And um actually it's um I was quite intrigued at the setting up this whole kind of battle of wits because I thought maybe they'd work together a bit uh, sooner than this. But certainly, and it's kind of it, it hurts a bit because obviously we're rooting for Angela and we're rooting for Laurie. So it's yeah I, I don't know how to feel about that.
2: I think we kind of got like the two women's version of like the Gordian knot because I mean first you have Laurie with the um cavalry guy with the um bomb strapped to his heart and she just like shoots right through him with force thinking that would work and um in the end it kind of did work out and then Angela's sort of version of that is like Laurie trying to bait her into this like um you know I'm the alpha I have this epic speech about you and she's just kind of like no you're lame and you know fuck your coffee um so yeah i thought that was just a very gaudian sort of set of scenarios
0: i also thought there was a bit of a domination thing in uh sister knight using like the night owl glasses like that's very appropriating and it's got a like sting seeing like your boyfriend or ex-boyfriend or whatever dan is to lori right now seeing his stuff seized and being used by like these hacks
1: like I noticed. Hard. I noticed Angela seemed to have left the goggles behind at the end, which I thought was a. I don't know, I don't, who's <laughs> going to pick them up? Like I thought it was a bit weird, but yeah, probably not that significant. Um, one thing, speaking of the whole uh, scenario with shooting the suicide bomber, I just, it, it occurred to me after a rewatch, um, you know, there's an issue in the comic where Ozymandias sort of has that supposed assassination attempt on his life mm. which he sort of, like, uh, stops and kind of shoves that poison capsule into the, the, the culprit as well in the in the culprit's mouth, and we find out that he basically staged the whole thing I do wonder, could Senator Keen be doing something a bit similar? Like, could he have, um arranged for this whole kind of assassination attempt or whatever or kidnapping attempt and may- i mean maybe it might went a bit awry but certainly blowing up crawford's body seems a bit of a convenient outcome doesn't it like obviously it yeah. seems a bit weird to plan something that kind of crazy to happen but i can't help but think like something there could be uh forces beyond our comprehension at work
2: well, we have talks of, like, Russia making their own intrinsic field generator and Ooh, yeah. that is the Doctor Manhattan machine, am I wrong?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I that's what makes one. Okay,
2: right. Yeah. Um, so, like, my first thought... The
0: Boobastus killing machine.
2: Right. My first thought was, like, maybe Keane would be trying to divert attention away from that, but then I was like, hang on, that would be an unironic Red Scare plot and I don't think Lindelof is going to, like, do that. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Interesting, interesting seeding for potential events down the line.
0: Mankind
1: is ready for change. I had to wonder, um, was was it Judd's intention to humiliate Angela by making her sing at his funeral? Because like, <laughs> holy shit, if someone asked me to do that without even any accompaniment, I would be hesitant.
0: This was very Leftovers-esque.
1: Very
2: out of time clapping.
0: Leftovers drew a lot of emotion from scenes where you know, a normal person sings and normal people aren't good at singing. They sing out of tune and they get the timing wrong and they're off key and everything, but that's very emotional to hear someone, you know, kind of bare their heart and be so vulnerable as to sing when they're normal and they're terrible at it. So I, I, it's, it's, it's very emotional and it's a big thing I think for an actor to do it and it makes a strong scene, but for the actual motivations, uh, Judd seemed the crafty type
1: that I absolutely could believe um, did it kind of as a joke. <laughs> um, basically, am um, on the topic of, um, checking in on Vietnam, which is always worth doing, um, someone took some photos of one of these, uh, Manhattan booths that HBO is displaying at, like, conventions and stuff, and inside one of them, there's, um, in, you can see some little graffiti that says Free Vietnam, which I think is, like, interesting, um, they, this whole, um, true, uh, network, they seem to have not only bought, uh, Vite, vite Industries, but they seem to have, like... Corporatized Manhattan and the idea of Manhattan because like these booths that they've got these phone booths they're almost like it's like a form of prayer almost isn't it like it's you can come yeah, to these booths and talk to God and pretend that you know he's he's listening and it's there's there's a weird kind of religious aspect to it all and I just I really wonder what is the game with uh, Lady True and kind of True uh, True Industries whatever, whatever they whatever they're, they're doing because it seems to be are they are they planning on getting like sort of, some sort of karmic payback for what happened to Vietnam or is it just kind of like a world domination thing like i really don't know if they're good guys are they bad guys like it's very yeah it's it's quite a puzzle
0: i I presume they were in league with the magisterium giving the the (laughs) boot
1: yeah i just need some people in um dark robes um conspiring to talk about it
2: (laughs) i think um this sort of proliferation of manhattan like in the media that you were talking about that's I was having trouble getting over the fact that Laurie was still like not over Manhattan until I kind of thought about like she would be bombarded with you know those boots and the fact that something like um, the toy she has at the end is even on sale would probably make it difficult for her not to buy it almost.
1: Um, Lindelof made the, in that interview I mentioned about the dildo Lindelof made the comment that the last thing anyone wanted to do was portray Laurie as still being so hung up on Manhattan that she couldn't move on but also nonetheless if you had you know if you've been having sex with like the most powerful being on earth like could you could you entirely forget that would you not maybe want like yeah. a some small reminder even if you're not that well I was going to say not that emotionally attached but we see her kind of shedding a tear at the end like as uh, she sort of says like goodbye John and stuff and yeah 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 i've got mixed feelings on that but she, yeah certainly maybe she hasn't entirely moved on per se i wouldn't say she's still in love with john but she certainly seems a bit a bit glum about how everything has turned out because it was all it's quite sad isn't it i loved the music over her final speech to john by the way just as that that very kind of that high pitched kind of like kind of ambience as she was giving her last little speech and um and also to to follow that up with her finally you know laughing for the first time just like a mad woman as she looks up at the red planet in the in the sky that was a very um very good final image i like that it's kind of her embracing her her inner clown like her inner comedian
2: Um, Speaking of music, my sort of utopia, um, jaw-hitting-the-floor moment of the episode was finding out that Vite listens to Desmond Decker, of all things. That was amazing, (laughs) because, like, I love that song, and um, I wonder why they chose that song, like, because it's a very... um, racially charged song so i'm like is Vi actually gonna try to start a race war or something <laughs>
1: like, i believe in the in um the interview that adrian gives in one of the after one of the chapters in the comic he mentions his taste in music and i think he's yeah. um he, he mentioned that he's recently got into that sort of whole sort of uh, musical scene so yeah, I like, think it could be like a nice little reggae and stuff yeah yeah nice little reference that's to
2: cool that. i i did not remember that but yeah i was shocked because like it's not the first thing i would have guessed he listened to
1: I think it's really worth appreciating how dense the show is. Like they've really, they've really knuckled down and built off every little detail they've picked up from the comic and built this whole. Uh, they've been very dense in terms of just making everything link to something else and have it all stem from the source material in some way. Because that takes a lot of effort, and I really appreciate it.
2: Although sometimes they are just like shockingly blunt about it. Like the hotel they're staying at is just called Black Rage. <laughs> <Black laughs> <Black. laughs> that seems a bit clumsy, you know. Like all the place names in the book were so like laden with illusion and like subtle references to history, but here it's just like, you know, Black Freighter. That's that's a bit of a nitpick, though.
0: This is just a minor point, but something interesting the back matter cleared up this week is that the reparations were given to 50 incidents of certifiable atrocity perpetrated by structures or agents of white supremacy. So it was the Tulsa Massacre, the Japanese internment camps, some Native American reparations given out and that kind of thing. And the reason it was done is because the Liberal Democrat government was
1: trying to uh, what was it? They were trying to give reparations to everyone, or something. But basically, I think what it was was that um, the Supreme Court, which is now a very liberal, was gonna like if they like kind of heard this whole reparations argument, it would end up becoming like some huge countrywide mandate thing. So what these um, politicians have done instead is they said, okay, we'll give it to certain people. Like, we'll, we'll okay, we'll we'll, give, we'll concede this much, just so it doesn't yeah. become a huge thing. It was the it was the yeah. compromise? And also, an interesting detail is that. Um, uh, I think that we got from the episode this week is that I think it explains a lot about Tulsa and the setting and the stuff to do with the cops as well because so we've noticed that the police force appears to be a kind of majority minority or at least has a very strong minority presence and they mention that black people have been coming to Tulsa because they're descendants of people who were affected by the massacre and who have been presumably like spread out around you know the, the country for one reason or another and now they've all been coming back in and kind of making Tulsa their new base and I think that that clarifies a lot for me in terms of why why kind of the makeup of things is the way it is I think that's very useful information.
0: And it adds to that whole racial inversion kind of thing in that it's it's almost like people of color colonizing Tulsa in a way and that you know we've got these very very conservative you know white people that are taking refuge in the like Nixonville um, little recluse places. Yeah, it's, it's
1: basically reservations aren't yeah. they those things?
0: So it's interesting, I know it, it generates a lot of talk and think pieces, but it's interesting how reframing and inverting things, you know, kind of suns context, racially, uh, it's interesting how that turns out
1: and how we try and wrestle with it. Just one more thing that's totally unrelated to that, but I really want more of Wade a Slasher Looking Glass because I feel like he's he he was so, he was such a little kind of weakling this week. I saw, we saw yeah. a totally different side of him. I'm just like I'm really excited to get into him a bit more. Yeah, and it
0: reminds me of Dan a little bit, just the hum- yeah. fundamental. He feels like a decent person or like a soft person at the heart of him. Yeah, softy. When
1: are we gonna have some gay main characters?
0: Yeah, the the comic is resplendent with them, and the show it seems. I mean. If you call Will a main character, there's one, but he has a granddaughter, so yeah, I'm wondering what happened there. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected gay erasure to be one of the things happening in the TV show, but it's a bit—it's noticeable because the comic, you know, is so much about sexuality and things like that. It even kind of makes this idea that you know there's a reason why most of the Minutemen or half of the Minutemen were gay and that kind of thing, um, as sexuality relates to superheroics. So, for the show to seemingly not have any gay characters so far is weird.
2: Were there any gay characters in The Leftovers? <laughs> uh,
1: oh. <laughs> wow! Oh my god! One more, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. On the subject of cancellations, I've got to say this: um, in the uh, in the liner notes for the um, the soundtrack album in the Sons of Pale Horse thing, they mentioned that the guy writing it and um, he's doing it for this um th- series called Cancel Culture Classics.